I strongly believe that that my voice particularly was aided in this period with having to stop touring and stop getting on planes and having proper sleep. If I talk to someone and they say, oh, you know, this is so lame. I can't go out on the road and I don't know what to do. And I'm like, this is an amazing opportunity <laughs> to write more and really work on your singing or work on... For me, it was also very much working on my piano playing. Like I can really practice for several hours a day. And, you know, it's a good time as an artist to really focus on mastering something. Hello, I'm Arianna Huffington, and welcome to What I've Learned. On this episode, Rufus Wainwright on why we need to unfollow the rules and re-examine our assumptions. Rufus is one of the most original singer-songwriters and composers. He's released seven studio albums, three live albums, and has written two operas. He says his latest album, the Grammy-nominated Unfollow the Rules, represents the end of the first chapter of his amazing career. So, Rufus, what would you say is your biggest overall lesson about yourself and about life that you've learned over this past unprecedented year? Well, I definitely feel that having to stop and reevaluate everything <laughs> in my life was a much needed event that I wasn't necessarily aware needed to happen. I'm a touring musician, you know, and I'd spent um, years on the road. And it was only when it, when COVID occurred and, and I had to be home for an unlimited amount of time that I realized how exhausted I was. <laughs> and especially having our daughter now, she's 10, and certainly how fortunate we were to be able to actually just shift our attention totally onto her needs. At the outset, I did, I have to admit, it was a, a real blessing. Now, there's other branches to that, which are less sort of positive. But yeah, I think the beginning was kind of great, sadly. And then is the least positive thing the fact that it's dragging on, that we never thought it would be that long? Yeah. I, I mean, certainly as, as a musician, and this is more like in solidarity with other musicians, who perhaps are not as fortunate as I am, it's such a massive blow. I mean, if you look at Broadway and all the people who play in those orchestras and the opera, I'm a big opera fan. I have to say, speaking to you is always great because, you know, I read your callous biography when I was very young. So that was a big uh, moment for me. But that whole world, you know, the whole theater, opera, live music world is really limping along right now. So that needs to be addressed. And then, of course, there's other socioeconomic differences that I don't really feel as much because I'm white and in a certain bracket. But you see, like in the streets of L.A. especially, you know, you see some real effects of this kind of crumbling society. <laughs> yeah. So you are affected by the impact it has had on our world, on our culture, on so many people we know, people we don't know. But for you personally, it seems that as you write in your song, Alone Time, it's also kind of changed your relationship with time and how much time you need alone. Ironically, we all thought we would have a lot of alone time at home, but we ended up being cooped together often, even with people we love, which has made it harder to have alone yeah. time. How did that yeah. work for you? Well, I mean, I, I feel very lucky because I, 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 and I'll admit, and I think that anybody in a marriage or a long-term relationship can 
admit that when the pandemic hit, there was definitely a couple of weeks of like, oh my God, is this going to wipe out <laughs> my relationship? You know, can I do this? Thankfully, it ended up being really good for us, for my husband and I. We actually needed to reconnect in, in, on several fronts. Also, my husband is my manager, and that ended up being interesting because, I mean, we worked together a lot, but then when it turned out that we had to keep working together and living together all the time and bringing up a child, it actually worked out well because just practically we could survive. The house became like this factory, <laughs> but I'm ready to go on tour. You talked about your husband being your manager. He also seems to be your life coach. You said that he has taught you how to chill out and not take everything too seriously. Yes. Yeah. Well, he's, I mean, my, my husband is German. You know, not normally a culture you identify with chilling, chilling out. out. No, 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 no. <laughs> I think that's more the European side, I should say, as opposed to the American side, where I, I think there's a lot more perspective in European culture. But that being said, I mean, he's incredibly organized and he does really run a very tight ship. I, I think uh, on one hand, he's very disciplined, but also it's like, look, it's not World War II. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know because I, I'm Greek and uh, my mother had that personality about putting everything in perspective. She had been through the war. Her saying was angels fly because they take themselves lightly. Don't take yourself <laughs> so seriously. So I, I was brought up in that kind of household. But also having a child who is still so young has a big impact on you, right? I mean, I, I love what you said that you had the opportunity to think like a nine-year-old who is now 10. What was that like? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm a gay man. And before 2000, God, 2010, I didn't really think I would have a child. Like it never really entered my um, consciousness. I mean, it was a funny little idea that my friend Lorca Cohen, who's the, the mother of Viva, we kind of played around with in a very playful way. But then all of a sudden, it just made sense to go forth with that concept. A, a lot of it for me was uh, around my mother's death, who, who died around then, and just this need to bring life into the world. So we did it. And yes, I am constantly amazed at how blessed I am, and also just how it's really the antithesis of who I was to build my life around this other being whose needs are very, very basic. And it just allows me to, you know, get out of the clutter of my, you know, intellectual musings and just be like, oh, no, this kid, all they need is love and attention and uh, and its structure, you know. And fortunately, unlike my father and a lot of men, I think, especially in the 70s, who were bringing up kids and felt like they had to, you know, conquer the universe. I'm I'm like, oh, no, I don't have to conquer the universe. <laughs> don't you feel in a way that you have conquered the universe in the sense that it's different when you are struggling at the beginning of a career uh, than when you are so established and successful? It takes some of the pressure off yourself, doesn't it? I mean, you can always keep working and being nominated for more Grammys, etc. It's an endless process, but you don't have to prove anything. Yeah, no, I don't. I had that time. That is true. And I started young. You know, my, both my parents were very accomplished musicians. And so I really started when I was a child and then came to Hollywood early on and really made my mark. And certainly by the time we had our daughter, I'd made my mark. <laughs> so I was fortunate in that way, which is different from my dad. I mean, my dad had had me when he was much younger. I do suggest for men to have kids probably a little later in life. 
<laughs> I agree. I had my kids later in life and it yeah. does make a difference. You have a different perspective and you kind of are more grateful for them. It's what you said about inhabiting their minds and also the fact that she was the one who really gave you the idea for unfollow the rules. I love that, that she walked into your room and said, Dad, I want to unfollow the rules. <laughs> what, what do you think it meant to yeah. her? Yeah. Well, I think when she said that she was about five or six. And it's this wonderful period that she's sadly not in anymore. She's 10 now, but there's this age around from about six, I'd say to eight or nine, where it's this transitionary period where they're becoming, you know, aware of themselves, but they're also still attached to this sort of surreal nature of life. And I feel like when she said unfollow the rules, it was this strange connection that she made in her head where on one hand, she was facing rules in life. You know, you can't do this, you can't do that. But also she was hearing a lot of stuff with computers, like unfollowing people on Facebook or unfollowing people on Instagram. And she just kind of put two and two together and said, oh, well, I'll just unfollow rules. <laughs> you know, like I'll press that button. There's another great story around, this is a bit earlier, but at one point I took her to the bathroom in a restaurant. She said, is this the women's room or the men's room? And I said, I think this bathroom is unisex. And then she said, what does a unisex mean? And I said, <laughs> well, it's it's for both men and women. And then she said, oh, no, it shouldn't be that way. Unisex bathrooms should be for unicorns. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, of course. But that kind of amazing, what children's minds put together, you know, with words. And now, of course, she knows everything and she's completely jaded. <laughs> yes, at 10, 10, of course. And and then she has to yeah, yeah. rediscover a new innocence, right? By 12. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but Unfollow the Rules, which was inspired by your little daughter, has so much meaning in our world today, not just about rules generally and unlearning rules and learning better rules, but also, as you have said, about social media. So, how do you see that, the relationship with social media, with technology, the way they've kind of taken over our lives in so many ways? I'm really happy you brought this up because I do feel that there's a myriad of reasons or, or, or of kind of definitions that I can put behind this title. One being that when I was first going to release the album, it was right at the outset of the pandemic. And I was very worried, actually, about this title, Unfollow the Rules, just because there were so many rules that had to be followed, you know, with masks and social distancing. So we ended up not releasing it at that period because it was too crazy. So we reset the, the release date to later. And then when we did, it was after the Black Lives Matter protest. And suddenly it made a lot of sense, you know, unfollowing the rules. Like, what are these constructs that we um, are now reexamining? And that's kind of how I started to equate that title, Unfollow the Rules, with this reexamination of, of society. But then by the same token, with unfollowing in general, it's such a, a myth. You can't unfollow anything. <laughs> you know, all of these buttons you press, like I'm going to delete your friendship or delete this or delete that. It's just, that's not happening. The information is going somewhere else and being kept by someone and, and people can't be erased. So, so it's, it plays with that. And as I said, it's not about eliminating the rules, but it's about turning around and going back and examining why they exist and whether they should or not, you know, after really examining their history. So, so that's where I end up with that idea. 
I love that. And uh, I think about social media, for me, it's different. It's like the concept of unfollowing is removing something from my immediate attention. The most important thing we have is our attention right now. So I don't want anything coming to my attention that's not enhancing life. How do you manage this constant robbing of your attention by meaningless things? And I don't know how you're handling that with Viva. We're not allowing her to do any of that stuff at the moment, though we are preparing to allow her to have a phone. I'm thinking my whole theory right now is, you know, teenage years, so 13. <laughs> you know, there we go. We still have a couple of years. But um, I am constantly amazed at how different my life was just 15 years ago. I really wasn't engaged for the longest time in social media or Facebook or Instagram. And now it's you know, really one of the main um, thrusts of my career, you know, just trying to keep that going. And and it's just, it's breathtaking how different the world is. And I'm not sure if it's a good thing or a bad thing. I will say with the pandemic, what's a nice thing about the pandemic also is that I, you know, I really poo-pooed social media and the internet for a long time. I, I very much felt above it. And, you know, I'm opera loving, you know, old fashioned <laughs> queer guy. But, but and now after really having to rely on it for my livelihood, I have a newfound respect for that world. That's you know? different. That's a very yeah. intentional, deliberate use of communicating with your fans and your audience. I think the problem is when it becomes kind of doom scrolling or comparing yourself to somebody else's highlight reel, especially when you are young and before you've built your own foundation. When do you think you're going to give a phone to Viva? She's not clamoring for it at the moment. She's actually getting into reading, which I'm really excited about. She's getting into these books, these Percy Jackson books. She's actually obsessed with Greek mythology. Wow. Well, I, I've written a yeah. book on the Greek gods and goddesses. I'll send it to you. That would be wonderful. Yes, I'll sign it to Viva. But also, we've developed a product so that when you give her a first phone, you also give her this little phone bed we've built, which is a charging station for phones, and it has a little blanket, so she learns that her phone does not sleep with her. So you put it outside everybody's bedrooms, and ideally you and Yorn and your daughter put the phones there. I'm kind of obsessed with teaching children phone hygiene. Because if you think of it, the iPhone is very young. So we're just beginning to understand the impact it has, especially on children before they're fully developed. And that's part of understanding that in order to be able to sleep and fully recharge, you have to disconnect from your daily world. Where does your phone sleep? I charge mine at night downstairs by the piano. <laughs> so I'm, I'm not, I don't keep it near the bed at all. And speaking about the phone, and one of the things that I still hold on to very dearly is the opera world. For me, going to the opera, and when that occurs again, that will remain, as it has through other technological eras, this sacred space where there are no microphones. You can't video someone singing an opera. You have to turn everything off. It is this kind of temple to what humans can do, you know, acoustically and without, you know, electricity necessarily, at least musically. So opera for me is, is also one of the main 
antidote, I should say, to technology, because I still don't think, you know, it can top <laughs> what opera can do. <laughs> I agree with you. It's like your connection with the sacred. But as you were growing up, was there any uh, faith, any spiritual upbringing in your family or was music there? It was really music. I mean, my mother was, she was brought up Catholic, but she wasn't practicing in any way. I will say that certainly with her illness, she died of cancer and she was only 63. And then also with other issues, you know, around my sexuality. She didn't deal too great with that. Anyways, but it was funny how the Catholicism kind of came right back <laughs> to the front. <laughs> it was deeply embedded. Even though she wasn't a practicing Catholic, it's, it was still very in her. And for you, did religion become more prominent in any way during the pandemic year? No. I mean, I was never baptized. My sister and I were not baptized. I'm not sure why, but we weren't. And... I don't know. I mean, I have to say I'm, especially with how American politics is, what it's become, you know, I, I, I find myself more and more resentful <laughs> of religious sort of dogma concerning stuff like that. I, I mean, I'm not anti-religion at all, but I'm quite dubious of it at the moment. <laughs> well, there's such a big difference between uh, organized religion and sort of sacred wisdom that's connected to something deeper in ourselves. I was brought up with that. I had a mother who was very eclectic. You know, it was Greek and Indian and the Tao and the Stoics. I was always part of that aspect of spirituality, which has actually in many ways become more dominant during the pandemic years when people were looking for something deeper to connect with. Yeah, yeah. I think the Orthodox uh, religion is more mystical <laughs> uh, or uh, more open to the East and other kind of avenues than the Protestant, <laughs> the Protestant yes. ethic. <laughs> <laughs> it is more mystical and it is more about the icons and the incense and uh, kind of engaging all the senses very much in a way opera does. Yes, 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 yes. Do you notice a performance difference? Because ultimately you're a performer as well as creative artist. So do you notice a difference in how you perform when you've slept enough, when you are recharged? In that sense, you are a little bit like an athlete. Yeah. <laughs> and athletes, of course, notoriously talk about the connection between sleep and well-being and scoring. So what yes, about yes. you? I strongly believe that, that my voice particularly was aided in this period with having to stop touring and stop getting on planes and having proper sleep. If I talk to someone and they say, oh, you know, this is so lame, I can't go out on the road and I don't know what to do. And I'm like, this is an amazing opportunity <laughs> to write more and really work on your singing or work on... For me, it was also very much working on my piano playing. Like I can really practice for several hours a day. And, you know, it's a good time as an artist to really focus on mastering something. And Rufus, we're going to focus more on this when we come back in just a minute. Sleep is the foundation of every aspect of our physical and our mental well-being. That's always true. But in extraordinary times of anxiety and stress, getting the sleep we need is more important than ever. Sleep is essential to both a strong immune system and to our mental resilience, the very things we need to navigate these uncertain times. 
That's why we've partnered with Audible, the sponsor of this podcast, to create the Audible Sleep Collection. It's available for free for members and includes bedtime stories, meditations, and extended soundscapes from Nick Jonas, Sean, Didi, Combs, Kiki Palmer, and more to help you fall asleep, stay asleep, and wake up fully recharged and ready to take on whatever challenges the day brings you. And stay tuned for a preview of one of my favorite Audible sleep experiences at the end of this podcast. Rufus, we've talked about the ongoing work you're doing to master your craft as a musician during the pandemic, but you've also tried new things like a 15-minute meditation at a Japanese temple. How was that? That sounds about right <laughs> in terms of my spiritual path. Yeah, 15 minutes at the Japanese temple. Let's go for it. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, <laughs> then we're off to the opera. But uh, yeah, no, I'm, 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 I'm game, you know, uh, for, for any kind of um, path, as long as it's not, I mean, look, look, for instance, I mean, I, you know, our daughter, my daughter, our daughter, Viva, you know, her grandfather was Leonard Cohen, you know, who was one of the great mystical uh, figures, really, of the last century. He, on the other hand, you know, did the full-on Buddhist uh, path, you know, really intensely and uh, or would go live in an ashram for years, you know. So there are veins of that, (laughs) you know, that I contemplate and that I've witnessed. But um, I don't know. I'm still, uh, yeah, I'm more 15 minutes at the Japanese temple. <laughs> <laughs> Have there been any other 15 minutes or is that the only 15 minutes uh, meditation break? Well, one of the great awakenings that, that occurred with me, and this is, it was a little bit before the pandemic. And, and it's something that I've been actually contemplating right now because now because so much stuff is done online now that it seems like it might be a good time to do this but when i was writing my second opera hadrian and i was thinking about that subject my trainer at the time we listened to like horrible rap music which i found kind of entertaining you know because it wasn't what i would usually listen to but at one point he asked me he said well what do you like to listen to and i was like well you know i'm a big opera fan And we started listening to opera during the workouts. And it was kind of an amazing experience. And we quickly kind of moved away from the opera and went more into like symphonies, like Beethoven symphonies and Mahler symphonies and stuff. And I did actually start to think like this would be a great thing to do uh, just to have a workout session during a symphony, you know, and where you would maybe talk about the symphony first and then you would work out to it. And because I did actually experience some very moving, very kind of profound feelings by getting exhausted, but listening to Beethoven. And it's something that I've been thinking of maybe like bringing back. <laughs> and bringing it back through your work. Yeah, or just like doing it online, like saying, you know, today we're going to work out to Beethoven's fifth something for older people, like people my age, who it's not like about necessarily, you know, getting wiped out, but just like having physical exertion during like amazing classical music. What it did with the brain, like for instance, I was doing workouts to like very romantic stuff, like Beethoven, as I said, and it was very emotional and very, and I I almost found it a little too intense sometimes, but then I would switch to Bach and it suddenly became very clear and very unemotional and very, you know, frenetic, cerebral, and like the different composers, like where they bring you when you're, when you're physically um, 
challenging yourself. It's, it's, it was kind of an interesting area. that Actually, I love that. Please bring it back, not just for older people, but I would love, you know, our children to be introduced to opera and classical music in a different way. I've tried with my daughters. Our agreement as they were growing up was, I want you to try it once, you know, yeah, come yeah, once. Yeah. <laughs> and I promise if you don't like it, I won't make you come again. So I remember taking them to my favorite opera. I don't know which one is yours, but mine is The Magic Flute, which is an amazingly mystical opera too. And it didn't work, Rufus, you know, yeah. that was it. But maybe if anybody's going to convince Isabella that opera is a good thing, it's going to be Rufus Wainwright since she's such a big fan. <laughs> well, I think the classical music workout is an untapped resource. I love you know? that. I, I hope you do it. And let me know if you do. We're going to spread the word. Okay, everywhere. good, good. So you have just completed or are about to complete the Rufus uh, Retro Wainwright Spective, which uh, you defined as a demarcation line between the chapter that's closing with Unfollow the Rules and the new chapter in your life and your music. So tell us about this chapter. Yeah, I love yeah, that yeah. because I'm Greek. So we're all about narrative <laughs> yeah, yeah, and myth yeah. and drama. Yeah. So wh- what was the old chapter and how would you describe the new one? Over 20 years ago, I first came to Hollywood and made my first album, Rufus Wainwright, my eponymous debut. And it was made in some of the great studios of this city and uh, with some of the great session players. And, and it had, you know, it had an effect on the music world. And I then subsequently made a bunch of other records. And then when I came back to L.A. to primarily be with my daughter, but also to, you know, make my next record, I revisited some of those same studios and worked with some of those same kind of classic L.A. musicians who, though, you know, 20 years ago when I started, it was what you did. Now it's really it's the end of an era, you know, this kind of California, Los Angeles, Hollywood record thing. So I did that and and I very much considered it hopefully first of three acts <laughs> of my life artistically was finished. And, and then with the Rufus Retro's Wayne Respective, I kind of went through all of those studio albums um, up until now. And so my next chapter is beginning. I, I'm feeling it to be much more European. I'm even feeling that there's a whole French section because, you know, I grew up in Montreal and speak French and I've been working in France quite a bit, but I'd love to make a classic French record. And I'm also really pointing my guns towards um, Broadway and doing more musicals and writing more musicals and trying to really, you know, make a mark in that territory. So, so yeah, that's sort of the second chapter that I'm embarking on now. I can't wait. And please don't forget the operatic workout. Oh, no. <laughs> So, Rufus, thank you so much. I just have a handful of rapid-fire questions. Okay, okay. So, the first is, what's on your nightstand? On my nightstand (laughs) is an erotic bronze from Austria (laughs) that looks all very nice, but if you push a button, it's like a satyr, I think, doing something funny with a nymph. But you have to press the button. <laughs> I see. It's not yeah. obvious. You have to it's press the button. Yeah, your button. Yeah, Viva, Viva doesn't know where the button is. But <laughs> it's one of these weird 19th century, you know, 
bronzes that uh, you press a button and something funny happens. I love <laughs> Involvi- that. Involving some grapes, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and ve- very Dionysian. And, yeah, yeah. and very impressive that there is no phone on your nightstand. Just an erotic sculpture. Perfect. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I know that's a very hard question for an artist like you, but is there a song or an opera or a Beethoven symphony that you would choose as the soundtrack to your life? Well, um, it would definitely have to be an opera. I'm reading a lot about Verdi right now because I'm kind of obsessed with his wife, Giuseppina Streponi. She was kind of the callous of her day. So I'm once again in a Verdi mode. And the opera that always got me going was um, Don Carlos. And there's something about the father-son relationship in that that still uh, hits me to the core. So Don Carlos, I always keep going back to that opera for some reason. I can just see you singing Don Carlos. (laughs) And what do you do when you can't sleep? Does that ever happen? Yes. Well, I am very blessed with very good sleep. My husband is not the same. He wakes up at ungodly hours and and can't fall asleep. So, but when I, well, reading for me at night helps. Also, I will say too that, you know, during the Trump era, watching a lot of Trump news started to put me asleep just because it was so exhaustingly terrible. (laughs) So it's a lot of things, whether it's fine literature or trashy news. (laughs) Amazing. Well, I will send your husband some sleep meditations and my book on sleep. They really, really help. We got Didi, you know, Sean Combs, to record a sleep meditation. Wow. You're going to love it because it's totally in his voice, using his language, but it's called Honor Yourself. Yeah, yeah. So it's about kind of honoring yourself through sleep and waking up fully recharged. Yeah, no, he need, he need, actually needs a lot of help in that department. Great. On the way, together with a phone bed. The final thing I want to ask you just to end on an up note is if you can give us three of your joy triggers. What are things that give you joy even when you are down or especially during this year when we all dealt with so many dark emotions? Well, one of them is something that I think living in Los Angeles, we all take for granted, but that I'm continually amazed by and it brings me joy every time is really Palm trees. <laughs> I love looking at palm trees. <laughs> I still look at them and I'm like, wow, you know, they're <laughs> such an amazing thing. <laughs> so always, so I always enjoy looking in palm, palm trees. trees. Yeah, mm. so palm trees. We have an amazing puppy. He's about five months old. He's a, he's a miniature Australian shepherd. Beautiful. Siegfried. Of course. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Operatic name. And uh, and just the love that a dog gives is just amazing. I don't know whether you're a dog person or a cat person, but like the the, the, the love that a pet gives to you is, is just, yeah. So that's that I would have to say too. And then um, I would say the third, well... Maria Callas, good Maria Callas performance. <laughs> Anyone you would choose? For me, um, the good old Lisbon Traviata <laughs> always, always moves me. I mean, it brings sadness too, but also just the joy that someone was able to do that and, and bring that much profundity to the world. Yes, so, I agree uh, with you because it was live. There was nothing like recording her live. Yeah, yeah, no, totally, uh, As opposed totally. to in a studio. There was something about her ability to 
perform and bring so much drama, not just with her voice, but with her, her aura. presence. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Rufus, that was amazing. Thank you so much. Uh, so grateful. And one of the things I'm most looking forward to is doing a workout to whatever music you pick okay. and, and coming to see you on Broadway. Okay. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> Before we wrap up, I'd like to leave you with a micro step inspired by our conversation about how unfollow the rules applies to technology. It's simple, like all of our Thrive micro steps, but it can make a big difference in your life. And it's to take a hard look at your phone's home screen and your social media feeds. Which apps do you really need and which ones can you get rid of? And when it comes to your social media feeds, unfollow any accounts that make you feel stressed, guilty, inadequate. If they don't add value to your life, if they don't add joy to your life, unfollow them. And now I'm off to exercise to some Rufus Wainwright music. A warning. This next clip might put you to sleep, and that's the point. It's part of Thrive's collaboration with Audible to create exclusive audio experiences to help you fall asleep, stay asleep, and wake up with the right morning mindset. The Audible Sleep Collection includes meditations from people like Sean D.D. Combs, Gabby Bernstein, and Nick Jonas, who we are about to hear from. The stories have no beginning, middle, or end, so you won't stay up to hear what happens next. Here is a bedtime story called The Perfect Swing. Nick turns to one of his favorite subjects, baseball, bringing in Ted Williams and Joe DiMaggio. What's the perfect swing? There is a good chance you'll be asleep before you find out. The Perfect Swing by James McGurk and read by me, Nick Jonas. Settle in, take a deep breath, and listen to me take you on a journey about the perfect baseball swing. How do you quantify the perfect swing? There's no better time or place to begin than New York City in 1941. At that moment, Joe DiMaggio was an American hero. Nicknamed the Yankee Clipper in 1939, he was the son of Italian immigrants and a superb all-around player with a squeaky clean good guy image. That season, he would go on to get a hit in 56 consecutive games. If you're not asleep yet and want to hear this sleep track in its entirety, go to audible.com slash thrive to start your free trial tonight. <laughs> 